0: History Show
1: with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's program.
0: In the 1860s in New York, we have women representing up to 86% of the prison population in New York, so they outnumber every other population combined.
1: Bad Bridget going behind the traditional emigrant success stories to tell the hidden tales of women that history tends to forget. Also,
2: Global influencers, those diaspora leaders, should be recognised as we progress towards the end of this decade of commemorations.
1: Ireland's global revolution. Dara Gannon joins us to talk about how interactions across national boundaries shaped Ireland's revolutionary decade. But we begin this evening in the domain of US presidential politics. The current resident of the White House is immensely proud of his Irish heritage. And President Biden also follows JFK as only the second Catholic to win the presidency. For a long time in the United States, it seemed unlikely that a candidate of Irish Catholic stock could achieve America's highest office. In the presidential election of 1928, religion played a big role as Democratic candidate Al Smith became the first Roman Catholic to be nominated for president by a major party. Colin Flynn has the story.
3: If Al Smith had never existed, we wouldn't have that wonderful story. We wouldn't have the story of the kid from the Lower East Side who is nominated for president, which to this day is still one of the most extraordinary political stories we have in the United States.
4: Al Smith is the major American historical figure who has been most forgotten by history. And it's a real shame.
2: Alfred
5: E. Smith was born in 1873 and grew up on the Lower East Side of New York in a very poor Irish-American family. Here's author and journalist Robert Caro.
4: Well, we know he had to leave school at the age of 13. Uh, His father had died some years before and in those days, if a widow had to go to the government or go to charity, The first thing that happened was her children were taken away and put in an institution. Al Smith hears his mother say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just don't know what I'm going to do. And he says, I'll take care of you. He dropped out of school completely. He worked at the Fulton Fish Market from 5 in the morning till 5 o'clock in the afternoon, five days a week.
5: Alfred Smith grew up in the Gilded Age. While the Brooklyn Bridge was being constructed, he would later say that he and the Brooklyn Bridge grew up together. He came from a very Catholic family and neighborhood. Al Smith would have been a simple, sincere, genuine Catholic. That's
6: Archbishop of New York, Cardinal Timothy Dolan. He loved his Catholic faith, he was proud of it, he took it seriously. The importance of loyalty to your friends, a sensitivity to those in need just an inbred innate value that the poor deserved a a helping hand these are all catholic values
5: that would have been part of al's life his political career started early in life and al smith aligned himself with the people that he knew best the working class immigrants
4: by legislative enactment
1: today is the first day that lager beer in excess of a half of 1% may be legally possessed.
5: Al Smith was what we would call today a character, a real New Yorker.
4: You know, you think of Al Smith, he looked so funny today's terms. I mean, he had a lot of gold teeth in front. His face was red. His nose had veins on it. He wore these funny-looking... Us funny looking suits with very wide pinstripes, always was smoking this big cigar.
5: Despite being a bit rough around the edges, he was popular and in 1918 was elected as governor of New York and went on to make tremendous changes to help the lives of the working class.
1: Well, I think Al Smith uh, was different from a lot of the governors who came before or after.
5: George Pataki is another former governor of New York.
1: New York has this tradition of kind of aristocratic governors, the Harrimans and Roosevelt's and Rockefeller's and people like that. Al Smith came from the people came from the streets.
3: Before Al Smith, uh, a lot of people believed that government should help people, but only the right sort of people. Terry Galway
5: is an author and historian.
3: And this was handed down to New Yorkers and to Americans from the Victorians in Britain, where there was a difference between the worthy poor and the other poor. And Smith blurred that difference. In fact, he smashed that difference. You were entitled to aid because we were a great
5: society, we were a good society. His election as governor of New York was also historic, as it was the first time an Irish American Catholic was ever elected as governor of a state. He was breaking the mold of who an elected official should be. Author Robert Caro.
4: His inauguration for the first term was one of the great moments in American history because it symbolizes how immigrants can become a part of American society. He was an Irish Catholic. He was the first Irish Catholic to be elected governor of any state in the Union. The inaugural parade in Albany was led by the 69th Regiment, New York's fighting 69th, the Irish Regiment. Trainload after trainload of people from the fourth ward came up. All together for Al Smith. They were singing his song, East Side, West Side. side, side. When he went, goes to Albany. The upstate Republicans try to make fun of his lack of education, but Al Smith had an answer for everything. There was this upstate Republican, a real snob from I think Buffalo, and he says something about Smith's education. This is when he's Speaker. Smith comes down to the floor and he says, "I would just like to refer the gentleman to Buffalo to the grammatical rule that says when a pluperfect adjective precedes a noun, insert a plus." Smith used to say, my degree is from FFM, the Fulton Fish Market. He felt the lack of an education all his life, but he also felt it was important that he overcome it.
5: He was able to overcome his lack of education. However, when he ran for president as the Democratic nominee in 1928, there would be other hurdles he couldn't overcome, like his Catholic faith. Cardinal Timothy Dolan. He
6: really, take this the right way, he didn't think his Catholicism was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal to him because it had to do with eternal salvation, but he couldn't figure out why people were so upset about it. He was startled especially by the bigotry in, uh, in Protestant uh, preachers. In a very celebrated exchange that he had with a, with a Protestant uh, pastor, he went nationally and, and acquitted himself very well and when the protestant uh, preacher said uh, what would you do if you received an encyclical from the pope telling you what to do now we know what an encyclical is a formal teaching document from the pope the successor of peter al smith was a good catholic but he looked and he
5: said what the hell is an encyclical his opponent was the republican candidate herbert hoover elizabeth perry is a political historian and professor who researched the 1928 U.S. presidential election, comparing
4: Hoover to Smith. And they let me watch some old newsreels of his campaign speeches. And here was this man in a stiff collar, a beautiful suit, speaking perfect English in a Midwestern bland accent. And he was extremely bland. But you could see how people would say, that's American. This guy from New York who says radio and who... Says the world, the word "world wild." Uh, he was so New York and so Lower East Side that they couldn't identify with him. Hoover, they could identify with.
6: He was easy to caricature uh, because what? He was kind of a big city, heavily accented New Yorker with a cigar and a glass of whiskey and his derby. And he was easy to caricature as a corrupt, big city, Irish Catholic politician.
5: Outside of New York, Al Smith was attacked for his Catholic faith and the fact that he had Jewish people and people of other faiths on his advisory board. It was an eye-opening and a heartbreaking experience because
3: he travels you know, throughout the Midwest and the South. Uh, there's a famous episode in Oklahoma where as his train Uh, pulled into Oklahoma City, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, which was very active in the 20s. uh, The Klan was burning crosses on the hills. You can't say whether it was more his
4: Catholicism, his anti-prohibition or wet stand, or his New York provincialism, which one was the biggest factor. But taken together, I think they spelled doom.
6: He was very shocked by the venom of anti-Catholicism in 1928. And a lot of the bigotry and standoffishness that he may have experienced in the state, especially from what we call the wasps, more of the, of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, aristocracy, would have also had to do with his Irishness. They just still looked at the Irish immigrant as sort of unwashed
5: and drank too much and, and not dependable. Hoover went on to win the presidency. And it really had a negative effect on Al Smith. It
6: broke his heart, and I don't know if he ever recovered.
5: Al Smith's fight for the presidency was not in vain. He proved that an Irish-American Catholic from an immigrant family could potentially reach the heights of power in the United States. And it would be just over three decades later that another Irish-American Catholic candidate would repeat what Al had tried. And so my fellow Americans. He kind of had a bit
6: more polish. Ask not. He would not have sat at a piano and and, uh, sung East Side, West Side. And he would maybe not have had that gritty sidewalk, roll up the sleeves, get things done. What your country can do for you. He was kind of from Catholic aristocracy, as you know. Ask what you can do for your country.
5: John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States. Before his death in 1944, Al Smith went on to leave another legacy in New York City when this working class Irish Catholic from the Lower East Side led the construction of the Empire State Building. But as time went on, his name faded from history and Al Smith became largely forgotten, though his legacy lives on in plain sight, not only towering above New York, but also in the laws and policies that aim to help ordinary working class people all across the United States today.
4: Why was Al Smith important? When we think of everything that government can do to improve people's lives, So much of it starts with Al Smith. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, when he was president, once said to Francis Perkins, you know Francis, practically everything we've done in the New Deal, Al Smith did first in New York.
3: Al Smith was the greatest governor New York has ever seen. Every time you go to one of New York's great parks upstate, every time you turn on a light switch, every time when you're in trouble, you turn to government, to society, in New York for help. You are experiencing the legacy of Al Smith.
6: You talk about minimum wage. You talk about protection of women workers. You talk about the protection of infants. Now, a lot of people talked big about it. Al Smith did it.
4: When I look back on how this particular immigrant group became so much a part of American life and so much a part of creating what's good In political life in America It all revolves around The figure of Alfred E. Smith
1: Colin Flynn was reporting there On the life and the 1928 Presidential campaign of Al Smith After the break Bad Bridget We'll be hearing the untold stories Of Irish emigrant women Who saw their American dream Become a nightmare Stay with us
4: Follow us on Twitter At RTÉ History Show
1: Welcome back. We turn now to the theme of emigration and a research project which goes behind the traditional emigrant success stories to tell tales of women that history tends to forget. Since 2015, Dr. Elaine Farrell of Queen's University Belfast and Dr. Leanne McCormick of Ulster University have been researching the stories of women who emigrated from Ireland to the United States and to Canada. They focused on women who were considered criminal or deviant who left from the 1830s to the end of the First World War, and they've uncovered a real treasure trove of fascinating human stories and hidden social history. Their research culminated in a five-part podcast series called Bad Bridget, which was released late last year. To talk about it, Elaine and Leanne, join me now. You're both very welcome indeed to The History Show.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Miles, and thanks for having us.
1: Elaine, tell us about the aim of the, the project and what kind of figures you found on Irish women who found themselves in trouble with the law and in prison.
0: Yeah, so our aim for the project was to look at the lived realities for Irish women who migrated to the US and to Canada across the 19th and early 20th century. And we wanted to look in particular at those women who found themselves in courts or who ended up in prison or in other um, institutions, that they were accused of some kind of deviant or criminal behaviour. We'd have loved to look, I suppose, at hundreds of cities in North America, but, you know, time and money uh, constraints, we focused on three. So we focused on New York, Boston and Toronto. We had both independently done kind of scoping trips in New York and Boston. And then we added Toronto because quite a large number of Irish Protestant migrants went to Toronto. And I suppose, I mean, I'm sure Liam would agree with me, but we were pretty shocked at the scale of, you know, this kind of Irish female criminality. Um, there were quite a lot of women ending up in prison, you know, far more, um, I think, than we anticipated um, when we left uh, to do the research. You know, you, we're ending up in the 1860s in New York, you know, just to give you some examples. We have women representing um, up to 86% of the, the prison population in New York. So that means that Irish women in prison are the largest group. They outnumber every other population combined. Um, and what we also found quite unusual is that Irish women are ending up in prison, you know, in, in larger numbers than Irish men in some years, And um, which would be quite unusual, you know, thinking about criminality where women tend to be far fewer in the criminal records.
1: Leanne, I suppose we should also establish that Irish women emigrated to the USA in the 19th century in similar numbers to Irish men, and both were leaving obviously poverty stricken conditions in Ireland itself.
7: There are sort of a number of things that are quite unusual and unique about Irish female migration in in the 19th century. And one of those is the the large numbers of women who are going, but also that so many Irish women travel on their own, which was very different in the European context of of immigration, where most women travelled as part of a family group or as wives and and mothers, really. So you're seeing often very young, we see 11, 12 and 13 year old girls travelling on their own. Sometimes with some maybe a contact to go and see, sometimes not, and travelling on their own in these large numbers. And of course, economics and poverty are often the big drivers behind this emigration and it is the possibility of making a new life. And for a number of these women, again, the pressure is about sending money home, that the expectation is that families may have saved for a long time to help a girl in the family to emigrate and that she'll be able to send money back home and hopefully that will maybe help somebody else um, migrate as well. So the importance of chain migration and the importance as well of sending money back home and supporting families back in Ireland.
0: And I suppose it was quite difficult sometimes to get out from the poverty. You know, when we're thinking about the Irish women who are leaving Ireland, you know, like we need to keep the famine in mind there. You know, the kind of the sheer poverty. And we have one woman, Margaret Foley, and she migrated at the height of the famine in 1847. She migrated to the US. She ended up having 10 children five of whom died. Her husband died when she was in her 50s. And and she says that since her her migration from Ireland, she basically earned her living any way that she could. So we can really get that kind of sense of the difficulty of shaking off that poverty.
1: And where were they in general finding work? Were they domestic servants? Were they working in factories? Where were they getting jobs?
7: Yeah, we we do see a real mix of jobs when they are going to a number of the big cities. Domestic service really is one of the main employers. We do see in our stories of Bad Bridgets though, a lot of those situations where women end up in kind of difficulties in employment. And for a lot of very young women, they can be taken advantage of in those situations as well as domestic servants. Often in the American literature at the time, and you see in in various magazines, the Irish servant is often sort of mocked and the the biddy, as she becomes known, becomes a sort of figure of fun too. She's often portrayed as this sort of muscly, uh, with sort of woman with simian features, uh, you know, a very rough compared to this sort of wasp. American uh, woman who's very genteel and is sort of often you know held to ransom by this very kind of rough Bridget type figure as well Um, but we see women working in areas where there are factories they're working in a whole range of industries for some women who are for example single mothers getting jobs and keeping a job in domestic service for example would be very difficult Um, so they are taking up any kind of work where they can.
1: And Elaine, are they going with any sense of adventure? Are they buying into the American dream or are they going under no illusions, whatever, and just expecting that there will be literally more chances of surviving in America than there would be if they stayed in Ireland? Is it as basic as that?
0: I'm sure Miles, that it, like there is that kind of sense of adventure. I suppose immigration was so commonplace as well that it nearly was like a coming of age, you know, especially for those who might have migrated as teenagers or in their early twenties. And I suppose especially if you know they're heading over to friends or they're heading over to siblings that they mightn't have seen for a while. There's also that kind of sensory shock, you know, that they're very often leaving rural Ireland um, and they're arriving in these urban cities, you know, New York and Boston. And and I suppose there's the kind of excitement and opportunities that that would bring as well. You know, we can see it in the records, this kind of the impact of this lack of surveillance, you know, that kind of lack of parental surveillance as well. You know, there's no neighbours kind of with the the twitching curtains and reporting back to parents about behaviour. So there has to be that kind of sense of freedom, when the women are, are heading over, I'm sure that many of them went with that idea that they were going to make something of themselves, you know, that they were going to go earn money, send the money back to Ireland, and perhaps then move home themselves with their money made. But for some, you know, I suppose that's, that's kind of one of the key reasons why we want to do this project, you know, we want to show that, that it wasn't always that success story, that there was a kind of a complexity to the Irish migration story.
1: Leanne, you cover a whole range of crimes, up to and including murder. But many seem to be related to alcohol. And you devote an episode of the podcast to the demon drink.
7: Um, Yeah, and I think this was something that we were quite shocked by. We did think that alcohol would feature quite heavily in a lot of these crimes. And I suppose there is that very strong association between the Irish and alcohol and drinking abroad. But we were um really quite struck by the sheer numbers um in most of our cities generally through the period we're looking at over fifty percent of crimes um, that women were being prosecuted for having some alcohol related issue and actually it's probably more than that you know if we were looking at the kind of the fine details of of crimes so you you have women being arrested for being drunk for being drunk and disorderly but a whole range of other public order crimes often had alcohol involved and a lot of the assault charges and things you've got people who end up fighting or or on assault charges where, where alcohol um, is involved in this as well and I suppose there are probably you know a number of reasons behind why the numbers of Irish women involved with alcohol were so high um one being really that alcohol was much cheaper in our North American cities than it was at home so it was it was much more easy to access to get hold of, and we see women often coming into for example halfway houses after having spent some time in in prison and um, discussing the reasons why they they drank and they're they're very often saying things you know that it's about disappointment or despair or or loss and that alcohol was something that they turned to in, in those times and there, there has been work written that, that does talk about why it's often really discussing men drinking and, and going to the the bars and things for, for male company but also about missing home and we see very similar things for women. We've got a couple of examples where women will say, "I didn't drink until I met so and so from home, and then then we went drinking, and I I spent time with her." And it, you know, it's sort of while it is maybe blaming somebody else, but at the same time, I think there's probably a lot of truth in those stories where where people did feel alone and and came together in those situations as well. So it does play a huge part in a lot of our crimes.
1: And Leanne, I think also one of the things that comes across is that at least some of the women emigrated to America because they were pregnant and you've got an episode, a podcast on the subject of unmarried mothers and there are a number of heartbreaking stories. Just, just focus on one of them. Tell us the story of Rosie Quinn, if you would.
7: Yeah, I mean, the, Rosie Quinn's story is a one of our really interesting stories. And one of the stories which you know quite a bit about because of the fact that her her sentence actually, she was pardoned um, in the end for a sentence as well. Um, Rosie migrated when she was about 16 in in 1900 and she goes to work in a hotel in New York, a big hotel, um, the Fifth Avenue uh, Hotel, which was a sort of luxury hotel. She is arrested at her work in December 1902 for suspected of having murdered her uh, three day old daughter. And when Rosie tells her story, um, it's one that is a common one um, in terms of lots of women at the time where she has found herself uh, pregnant she's not married she says that she went to the lying in hospital she gave birth and then she tried to find an institution to take her baby she knocked on doors to see if anybody would help her she couldn't get any help and she says she was sort of in despair and she went to central park she was standing beside the lake and in her words the baby slipped from her hands now she then returned to work in the hotel and there were various ways in which they were able to sort of identify that the, the blink the baby back to her and she was arrested there and found guilty of, of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison but a lot of the people in the hotel the staff that she worked with basically seemed to have got a campaign together they were it attracted a lot of attention in the press. A lot was made of the fact that she was this seen as this sort of innocent Irish girl who had been wronged. She'd been taken advantage of. She'd by sort of this man, and we're where the sort of discussions of who the father of the baby might be. And there's a there's a general furlong who's staying, who's a long term resident of the hotel, a, a millionaire, and he he's persuaded by the staff to become involved in sort of campaigning, essentially for her release. And all sorts of people write in and um you know saying that their heart is broken about the story that. Of what has happened to her and they, they you know they're basically a lot of sympathy generated for her and after serving about a year and a half her her sentence was she was pardoned and as, as far as we're aware she seems to have come back to new york but then probably gone west and and moved on somewhere else and started anew and again very unlikely really i suppose that she told of what had happened to her in in new york
1: and elaine there's also a story about a woman called ellen from Galway. That's a story that that happens in Boston. I think she she becomes pregnant.
0: Yeah. So you know, like you said, Miles, we have these women who are are leaving Ireland sometimes when they're pregnant. Um, you know, there is that sense of of stigma in Ireland. You know, giving birth to a child outside marriage could damage somebody's reputation, but also damage the reputation of their family. So we can see this sometimes then in the US when we have women who become pregnant and Ellen, as you say, you know, she's from Galway um, and she finds herself in this situation where she becomes pregnant and gives birth to a child and, and she wants to return home to Ireland. And she initially buys a passage ticket for herself and her son to go home, but then she later changes her mind and instead she travels alone and her baby is put up for adoption. And she says that she really thinks it would break her mother's heart if she returned home from the US um, with a child born outside marriage. So again, we can see the real kind of impact on women's lives, on, on the children's lives. You know, this kind of stigma really shaped her response in that case.
1: Leanne, there were also moral reform institutions, so-called. Were these moral reform institutions trying to actually help Irish women or were they more worried about the the souls and the afterlife of of Irish women?
7: I suppose it's a mix of both, really. Um, And in in keeping with the sort of type of rescue and reform institutions that are established across Britain and Ireland and and other parts of the world at, at this time, fueled by concerns about what's happening often in growing cities, about prostitution, about the moral behavior of women. And of course, these are very gendered. There are no equivalent institutions for men. Men are not in need of being reformed from their behavior. So it's very much about the women in these situations. And there's a sort of an idea of of if you can bring these women in, you can both Save their souls, and that to be properly reformed, they need to uh, repent from their sins, and then they can be trained up, ideally to be domestic servants, returned sort of in about 18 months to two years back out into the world. They'll get jobs and they'll be good, sort of moral, upstanding citizens. So these institutions sort of play a a variety of roles in that the ideal was to return, you know, women reformed back into society. And of course, it's they're run often by middle and upper class women who are in need of servants as well. So they, they do provide a kind of employment role in this too. But again, they are fueled by religious values. And you have got Catholic religious orders, such as the the Good Shepherd Sisters, um, who would have been involved in, in Magdalene Laundrie's in, in Ireland, also would have have run sort of similar institutions. Um, the institution, the Good Shepherd Sisters in New York, were very much involved in sort of running kind of a kind of alternative to prison and and a kind of halfway house as well for women when they would leave prison as well. So you see all denominations becoming involved in this uh, work as well.
0: But I suppose it's also, we need to kind of keep in mind that not all women kind of felt shame at giving birth outside marriage. So they didn't all kind of conform um, to that. We have one unmarried Irish woman, Mary McPatter, um, and she's seeking kind of help because she's poor, um, in New York and she says that she thinks there's no harm about her if she's not married but the officials you know she's not playing that role of the kind of repentant woman um, sorry for what she has done and kind of feeling ashamed of what she has done and officials describe her as a bold impertinent girl so she's really different than, than some of those kind of unmarried mothers that kind of play up that or attract so much sympathy because she's so defiant and she won't she doesn't acknowledge her shame at all
1: Elaine, you talked about, or you and Leanna both actually talked about, emigrants' remittances, about these women were expected to send money back home, and they did in large amounts. But in some cases, the families would not necessarily have known where the money was coming from. And what I'm leading up to is a, a podcast that you've got on sex workers. And one of, the I think, your favourite stories is of, of Maude Merrill, Tell us about Maud Merrill and the perspective that she gives us on this particular subject.
0: Um so Maud Merrill is one of my favorite cases. Sometimes I, I kind of feel like it's depending on what day you ask, <laughs> I'll have a I have a different favorite. But but she's a sex worker in New York in the 1870s and, and she's doing very well for herself. We have, you know, quite a lot of women who are are working in the sex industry who are are quite poor, sometimes homeless um, as well. But that's not Maud Merrill's story. You know, she's living in kind of lavish circumstances. She's living in this kind of luxuriously furnished house. Um, She has original art on the walls. She attends balls and dances kind of as an escort. Um, And she migrated to the US to join her sister, Charlotte, who had gone before her. And Charlotte is working as a domestic servant and is really upset at Maud working in the sex industry. And, and she tries to persuade her to leave. And Maud says, you know, OK, fine, you know, I will. But not now, you know, after Christmas, which is a few weeks away. And I suppose I like this case Because we get a bit of an insight here into Maud Merrill's agency, you know, that that she's making that deliberate decision to remain in the sex industry because she needs to earn um, money. So it's kind of that idea of a deliberate choice. and, And we don't often get a kind of sense of why women are involved in the things that they are involved in. She did have some negative experiences as a domestic servant. So maybe that's also why she didn't want to kind of fall back onto domestic service as an occupation. And you know, the this, this story has a sad ending, which which we talk about in the podcast. But we do get the insight into her life precisely um, because of this sad ending. Um, so we get the details of what her bedroom looked like, about what she had been doing in the days leading up um, to her death. And she's actually killed by her uncle. Now he's the very same man who has actually paid for her to migrate from Ireland to the US a few years earlier. And it was precisely because of her work in the sex industry that he killed her. So he said, you know, that she was bringing shame on the family through her sex work, and so he uh, murdered her.
1: Now I know both of you have spent a lot of time in archives in you know places like New York, Boston, Toronto, and the like, and that you have dug these stories out, as it were. But um, to finish off, I mean, I say as I as I point out, the podcasts in terms of crimes go all the way up to the level of of murder, and I would imagine that you didn't have to do an awful lot of digging in the case of Lizzie Halliday. Elaine, maybe you'd tell us about the, 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 the celebrated case, really, of, of Lizzie Halliday.
0: You're right, Miles. Uh, she's one of our more notorious um, bad Bridges. She has our, her own Wikipedia page um, and everything. Um, so the New York Times described Lizzie as the worst woman on earth. Um, so she has quite the reputation um, when she was alive. Um, she was the first woman in the US to be sentenced to death by the electric chair. Um, and that was in 1894. So she migrated. We think she migrated from County Antrim um, when she was a baby. Um, she married a few times. She had a bit of a checkered history in, in that she was accused of some crimes. She was convicted um, of arson. And then it all kind of came to a head in 1893 when she when her neighbours um, kind of felt that her husband ha- hadn't been seen. Um, in a while, so so he was quite elderly, um, and Lizzie said he was away. But the neighbours were, I suppose, a little bit um, suspicious. So when Lizzie was out of the house, and um, the neighbours went in search of Paul Halliday, and they they didn't actually find Paul. Instead, they found the bodies of a mother and daughter, Margaret and Sarah McQuillan, um, in the barn. And later, the body of Paul Halliday was found under the floorboards, um, in the kitchen. So Lizzie is, is arrested um, and brought to trial for the murder um, of the three individuals. Now, the trial attracted quite a lot of attention, as you can imagine, you know, thinking about the, the kind of murders um, that had been um, committed. And um, there were loads of rumours about Lizzie Halday. You know, the, the journalists kind of had all these different stories about, about what she had done in the past, what she might have done in the past even on one stage, at one stage, it was said that um, perhaps she had been involved in the Whitechapel murders. So perhaps she had she was Jack the Ripper, um, which was really kind of taking the, the whole thing um, out of context, but but shows us how how much attention her trial had attracted. um so she was found guilty of murder. And like I said, she was sentenced to death by electrocution. But in the end, she was saved um, because she was considered to be, as it would have been called, insane at the time. And instead, she went to an asylum. But she continues to be quite violent, actually. Um, in the asylum and in 1906 she was back in the the news again because she was uh accused um, of the murder of a, an attendant Nellie Wicks um at the asylum so so Nelly had said that that she was going to leave the asylum that you know she was was changing jobs and Lizzie halliday didn't take this uh very well um, and so she stabbed her more than 200 times um so it is an unusual case you know in terms of the the kind of the level of violence the kind of um, serial killing um, and in many Anyways, she's not um, the the kind of typical bad Bridget, but it does show us how how some of the Irish migrants really, some of the, the cases really attracted quite a lot of attention.
1: And It's a fascinating project. You've done great research. As I say, you have dug out some stories that we would otherwise, there's no way we would ever have heard of these stories. Lizzie Halliday being an an obvious exception. I should also point out that you are ably abetted in this project by uh, no less a person than Sister Michael herself. From, from Dairy <laughs> Girls, uh, Siobhan McSweeney. Yeah, um, which is amazing. Uh, but uh, anyway, so congratulations. A fantastic uh, project. The podcasts are available. You can listen to them on whatever your podcast medium happens to be. Just search for Bad Bridget, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Dr. Elaine Farrell and Dr. Leanne McCormick, many thanks to you both for joining us on The History Show this evening.
0: Thank you so thanks much, Miles. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.
1: Welcome back. Finally tonight, we're looking back at Ireland's revolutionary decade from a global perspective. I'm joined by Dr. Dara Gannon of Queen's University Belfast, who for many years now has been researching how interactions across national boundaries shaped Ireland's revolution. On the 30th of March, he'll be giving a lecture to the University of Toronto entitled In Search of Global Ireland, locating the Irish diaspora in the decade of Commemorations And uh, Dara, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. One of the points that you'll be addressing in that lecture is de Valera's return to Ireland in December 1920 after his 18-month tour of the United States. Just how successful do you think that tour actually was?
2: I think it's an important question to raise. Although de Valera returns in December of 1920 and the centenary of that has already passed, there is a sense of the Irish diaspora almost being a forgotten story in the Irish Revolution once de Valera returns. And it's important to recognise the achievements that he did complete while he was in the States. I think... Very often, the amount of money raised is cited as a major achievement and justifiably so. If you think about $65 million in today's money raised in the cause of the Irish Republic, it's quite unprecedented in Irish nationalist terms. But we also need to think about publicity. And when we think about Ireland during the War of Independence, Dáil Éireann suppressed in September of 1919. The Sinn Féin Press suppressed in September of 1919. De Valera's tour of the United States gave Dáil Éireann unprecedented access to the English speaking world. Not only his tours of major cities such as Boston, New York and Los Angeles, but also I think in terms of contemporary media such as film and radio. Given that we are in Oscar season, as they say, it's important to recognise that De Valera was actually considered a major celebrity at the time. There were offers of up to $50,000 to purchase the rights to make a major uh, motion picture film of his life. There was discussions of De Valera appearing in the film as an actor, And uh, those were kind of ideas that were floated at the time that gives a sense of how successful he was at creating this image of a respectable nationalist theatre. And that, again, would have transcended the kind of suppression of Dahl-Erin at that time.
1: Now, we tend to think of the War of Independence almost only in terms of IRA activities, but, you know, historians are aware that there was a very sophisticated parallel government in place when it came to things like the courts, when it came to things like county councils. But also one thing that even in that context gets completely or almost completely ignored is the fact that we had a nascent Department of Foreign Affairs, which was already sending a network of emissaries around the world, talk to us a little bit about that global reach that the Doll actually had a hundred years ago.
2: Very often we think of Ireland's global moment in terms of 1919, in terms of Wilsonianism, the Paris Peace Conference, and thereafter De Valera in the United States in 1920. You could argue that Ireland enjoyed a Western moment in 1919 and 1920, I think by 1921, through the Department of Foreign Affairs, there was very much a global moment experienced. Uh, one example of that is the translation of dollar and documents around the world. For example, the address to foreign parliaments around the world was translated into 15 languages, including uh, Chinese and Japanese. We also have the sending of emissaries around the world, not only into Europe, for example, more in Yvrain and Madrid, we have Nancy Weiss power in Berlin. So women were very prominent internationally, where perhaps they weren't as visible or as um, notable in Dal before that. And also in, in parts of the world where you wouldn't expect necessarily Irish representation. So, for instance, Patrick Little was sent to South Africa. And we have representatives in Buenos Aires, uh, in Brazil and in Chile. So Ireland was very much a global experience in 1921 and reached its peak I would argue in the spring and early summer of 1921 not 1919 and it's quite remarkable how the message of Ireland was quite literally but also metaphorically translated to other nations um, especially through um, things like the Irish Bulletin so I found documentation where Benito Mussolini was uh, reading the Irish Bulletin I'm not sure how good his English or his Irish (laughs) was, but the translations helped. Um, But also Sads Aglul, the Egyptian nationalist leader, in my research I've come across documentation from the National Archives in Kew, in which they're very concerned that the French translations of the Irish Bulletin were being sent directly to Sads Aglul. So there's a very keen sense in the official mind of British statesmen that this was a global moment for Irish nationalism.
1: Now, of course, Irish diplomatic efforts took many different forms, and one of those comes out in the, the battle over Pope Benedict XV and efforts by the British Foreign Office to persuade the papacy to denounce the IRA. This was resisted very strongly by two Irish bishops, but Irish bishops who were located many thousands of miles away from Ireland.
2: Very true and I think it's really important as we kind of grow into this deepening war of independence in Ireland itself that we recognise what you've just outlined, that there was a parallel war ongoing, a diplomatic war for that in Rome as well as elsewhere to save the respectability of the Irish Republic and to ensure that it was in a position to negotiate with the British state at some point in the future. And the example of Rome is very pertinent because certainly from the autumn of 1920, notably in the case of Terence McSweeney's hunger strike, there is an ongoing battle in Rome to try and discredit the Irish Republican movement, and the IRA in particular, on the part of the British Foreign Office. And this is resisted uh, very strenuously by Irish nationalist leaders in Rome, not necessarily representatives of Dáil Éireann, but whom I have called global influencers, such as Archbishop Patrick Clune of Perth and Archbishop Daniel Mannix of Melbourne. And in those cases, they visited Benedict Fifteenth in January of and March of 1921, respectively, and made really key interventions to try and stave off what was almost certainly what would have been a, a disastrous denunciation of the Republican cause by the then Pope. And crucially, in the case of Mannix in March of 1921, Benedict Fifteenth was so convinced by Mannix's argument that he asked him to essentially draft a statement on his behalf and that was published then in May of 1921 in the British press in which Benedict ostensibly claimed that the violence which was occurring in Ireland was uh, reprehensible, barbaric and needed to end. So this call for a truce in May of 1921 was carefully crafted by nationalist leaders in Rome but also people who were living outside of Ireland and I think those global influencers, those diaspora leaders, um, should be recognised as we progress towards the end of this decade of commemorations. Finally,
1: you, you had a series also of Irish race conventions, this is what they were called. Most of them, or a lot of them, seem to have taken place in the USA. But there was a very significant one, an Irish Grace Congress, I think they called it, in, in Paris, in January of 1922. Why is that particularly important?
2: I think this idea of the Irish race and the idea of the Irish race convention, those ideas were mobilised by Irish nationalists around the world to give a sense of diasporic unity, to give a sense of diasporic power, especially in the face of the British Empire. So we see Irish race conventions held in New York in 1916, in Philadelphia in 1919, in Melbourne in 1919, and Buenos Aires in 1921. And they all are kind of carefully constructed to speak to each other in terms of resolutions, organization, and so on. The Congress in 1921 is essentially the culmination of these global Irish efforts. Catherine Hughes is charged with organizing this event, and she's a remarkable figure in the revolutionary period for the fact that she was such a transnational person. Uh, She was born in New York, but she was raised in Ottawa and Canada. She staffed the Irish National Bureau in Washington DC from 1918 informing major figures in Capitol Hill of the Irish nationalist cause and was then um, supportive of de Valera on a southern tour in 1919 and 1920. And thereafter she organized the self-determination for Ireland League with Canada and Newfoundland traveling coast to coast to organize that movement and was charged by de Valera with traveling to Australia and New Zealand in 1921 to organize similar self-determination leagues in those countries. So it's quite remarkable the distance, geographical, but also political and intellectual distance, which Catherine Hughes traveled. And she's very much emblematic of this sense of global Ireland at that time. And the event that she organizes was remarkable in scope. 100 delegates arriving in Paris in January of 1922 for the Irish Race Congress from as far away as Java. And uh, this is an attempt to, again, counterweight the impact of the British Empire on the Irish Revolution. And it was actually organised as far back as March 1921, with the idea that any potential negotiations would have the Irish diaspora's influence over them. And this is negated, of course, by the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December 1921. But I think it's really important as we go forward into this decade of commemorations to remember and to reevaluate the importance of Ireland's global diaspora to the Irish Revolution beyond 1919, beyond 1920, and through the Anglo-Irish Treaty and beyond.
1: Thank you very much indeed for sharing your research with us now. It's fascinating research indeed. It provides an important perspective on the revolutionary years and and Ireland's global reach as it were. And your lecture on the subject is taking place over Zoom on the 30th of March. It will be made available thereafter on the Ireland Canada University Foundation's website. That's icuf.ie and uh, we'll put all of the details on our own website. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show the history show is a pegasus production for rte for now from me miles dungan and producer lorcan clancy goodbye and thanks for listening